Please be seated. Well, today we begin uh, the section of Jeremiah that is known as the Book of Consolation. Uh, you probably recognized from just our reading it why it's called that, or the Book of Comfort. Now, if you haven't been with us in Jeremiah, you're probably thinking, consolation, comfort, there was some pretty harsh stuff in there. But for those of us who've been through the book of Jeremiah, we recognize this is very different from the rest of the book. Because where much of Jeremiah, or most of Jeremiah that we've already been through, the majority of the message has been on judgment. The focus has been on judgment. And there has been hope kind of sprinkled throughout. But here it's kind of the opposite. The message is primarily that of hope. And the judgment is mentioned here with sustaining the discipline within that covenantal framework. It's so important to understand what God is doing here. It's not just simply just from a judicial sense, but it's just from the fact that he's established the covenant with his people. He told them when he did this, if you obey me, you'll be blessed, and if you disobey me, you'll be cursed. There would be judgment. And when he uh, renewed the covenant with his people at Moab, a passage that we refer back to again and again in Deuteronomy, because Jeremiah is so grounded in the book of Deuteronomy, we see the, the, the question being proposed to the people that it's, it's a hypothetical. It's, it's, it's looking to the future and saying, now if you do this, what's going to happen? Uh, and, and it supposes that the people say, why has the Lord done thus to the land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are in this day. That's Deuteronomy 29. We've read it before. We'll probably look at it again because we see that's exactly what happened in Jeremiah's day. That Judah had sinned greatly against the Lord. Her sins had been flagrant and the Lord uprooted them and sent them off as exiles into Babylon. But notice that the judgment is in the context of covenant renewal. It's in the context of the fact that God has... He is the one in the driver's seat. He is the one who both established the covenant, promising judgment for for disobedience and blessing for obedience, but he also promises restoration. He promises restoration. There is hope of redemption even in the the face of sin. And that's what we see in Deuteronomy as well uh, in the next chapter. We see that, that again, it's this this hypothetical in chapter 30, uh, and it says, And when you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Sounds a lot like what Jeremiah wrote. And you, we, can, we, we can see so much of that language is language that he borrowed from Deuteronomy. So just as there was the, uh, the, the, the promise of curse for disobedience, blessing for obedience, there is also the promise of restoration if they did break the covenant and he must discipline them. My point in saying all of this is that I want you to understand that salvation is by grace alone. It always has been. Don't fall into the trap, and we've probably all done this in our lives before we've realized how untrue this is, but don't say things like, the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment, and the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. Couldn't be further from the truth. 
The God of the Bible is a God of judgment and of grace. He doesn't change his character from one uh, covenant to the next. In fact, we see not only grace just in this passage, but we see it throughout redemptive history. When we talk about that theme of redemptive history, the theme of redemption, the storyline that God is unfolding throughout the ages, we can see his restoration and promise of it from the very beginning pages of Scripture. Christopher Wright is uh, an author, commentator on this passage, and he mentions three horizons that we can see in this passage. And I I use his words, horizons, because I think they're helpful. I've I've described this before, but I think horizons is a a helpful term to envision. Of when we see prophecy, we saw this in in Revelation. There's an immediate fulfillment and a far-off fulfillment. Uh, We saw this even in Genesis, in the the prophecy when we were studying Genesis, and we've seen it in Jeremiah as well. So in this particular context, he mentions the three horizons. First, the first horizon is the restoration that would occur at the time that the people are brought back from Babylon. They're restored to the land, they're brought back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and their fortunes would be restored. But yet in this text, we see something more, don't we? That there is something further down the horizon. There's a second horizon, so to speak, in which the Messiah would come, the son of David, to rule and reign in his kingdom. It talks about a son, a prince, a son of David being raised up to rule the people. And we know that when the people were brought back from Babylon, they didn't have a king. So this is pointing to something further down the road. And then we could say, but wait, there's more, right? Because there's even more spoken of in this passage, a third horizon, when in the final restoration there's permanent healing, right? Uh, the, the, the consummation of Christ's kingdom when he returns or his second coming. So in the immediate context, the hope of restoration applies to Judah and Israel we see mentioned here. This is the first time Israel's brought back into the picture. The primary message of Jeremiah is to Judah, but, but Israel's brought back in for the first time since chapter 13 because it, he's showing that the nations will no longer be divided kingdoms, but they will be restored together. But with this immediate context, there's also one further off, a messianic hope and the hope of heaven And this speaks to us in our own day because this is our hope. Now, the messianic hope in that Jesus has come is behind us in history. But his second coming or his return, that final consummation is still before us. And so we can relate to that waiting of when Jesus returns and we will finally be at home with him safely, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. And so beginning in our text in the first three verses, we find these words are introductions, uh, or an introduction rather, to not just this section of the book of Consolation, but this is an introduction to the entire book of Consolation, which is in the next four chapters, chapters 30 to 33. And first, we see that he's commanded to write these in a book. Now, Jeremiah has been primarily an order. He's, he's pronounced his prophecies. Now, he's had some object lessons, done some wearing of things, yokes and tunics and that kind of thing. But he's been primarily one who has spoken. He's been given the command to write, but here it's unique in the sense that he's told to write this in a book, that this is supposed to be something special. Now, some have speculated that Jeremiah might be in prison, and that's why he's being told to write. We're not told that here. Maybe he was. We know that he was at points in his ministry, uh, but we're not given that explanation. What we are given is an explanation of what the book is all about in verse 3. This is the theme of the book of Consolation. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. This is our theme. Words of comfort 
as the Lord promises to restore. The phrase, days are coming, that's future, right? We get that. We can see that plainly in the language. This is prophecy. There is a, there's a fulfillment of the words that are spoken. But as we've seen already, the, there are words, there's an immediate fulfillment, and then there's a fuller, uh, a more meaningful fulfillment down the road. But no matter which horizon you look at in the terms of prophecy, one thing that becomes abundantly clear in this passage uh, is that it is all by grace. If you think about it, God established the covenant with his people, and even that they didn't deserve. We weren't, God created man, you know, male and female, he created them. It doesn't, doesn't mean that he had to establish a covenant with them, but he did. It's all by grace. And even though they didn't deserve the covenant and he gave that to them, they broke that covenant. They wandered far off from him. They served other gods. And yet, even though the discipline of this wandering, of these flagrant sins, is just, there is even more grace. More grace. Why? Because after that judgment that they deserved by wandering from him, he promises to restore them. We can all go back all the way to the garden and see that pattern. God created Adam and Eve, establishes a covenant with them, they break the covenant, he judges them, but then God gives them words of restoration. Genesis 3.15, Seed of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent. There's the hope of restoration. There is the promise given graciously to the people that he would one day redeem them. And this pattern of redemption is now seen throughout Scripture. I wasn't prepared when Glenn asked me what was the title. You could tell he caught me off guard because I just, I'm horrible with titles. And so I just kind of came up with that this week. And thankfully it popped into my head and I gave an awful explanation, but I'll stop here and just say what Sunday school is going to be about. It's going to be about this. It's going to be about understanding the theme of redemption so that when you're reading the Bible, that you're not treating it like a medical journal or like an encyclopedia. Like you you flip it open for your quiet time and you read a passage and you're like, huh, what does this have to do with my life today? You know, and, and, and so often we, we do approach it as kind of a medical journal, like we're looking for that one verse that we can take and, and, and try and fit into our situation. And at times that might work, but at times we could really get off base doing that. And so what I want us to begin to see is how we take this thread of redemption and see that, that every, uh, every, every verse whispers his name. I think that was a Sally Lloyd-Jones phrase, that every verse of Scripture whispers the coming Messiah, the hope of restoration, the plan of redemption, and begin to see how Scripture speaks redemptively to us so that we can even read genealogies and benefit from them practically, spiritually, as followers of Christ. So I encourage you to be a part of Sunday school if you can. So this pattern of redemption then that we see, not something new in the New Testament. It's not new with the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is at the beginning of grace. He's not the beginning of redemption. God set this pattern in place all the way back in Genesis, and it is flowing and unfolding right here through the midst of Jeremiah. Once you see the storyline, I think it really brings Scripture to life because rather than isolated events that have no connection to each other, which is how many of us may have approached Scripture up to this point and may have been taught to approach Scripture, that it's this discontinuous story of different events that are, that are not really connected. When you see that they are indeed connected, that there is a storyline of God unfolding His plan and you are a part of that storyline, then you can begin to see how all of Scripture speaks to you. 
For example, what were the fortunes of Israel? Well, the fortunes of Israel were fortunes. It was land. It was possessions, sheep and oxen and abundance and so forth. And some of us may think, yeah, I'll take some of that. Lord, please bless me with that. You know, I would like abundant provision. But what we find for us now, on, at this point in redemptive history, is we have something far greater. For God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We have a great hope. In verse 4, we see that the message is again for Israel and Judah. So now we're, we're thinking of the division being, uh, being repaired or restored, that the two kingdoms would no longer be divided. And then in verse 5, we're thrown right into the midst of this scene that is depicted by cries and terror and panic. There's no peace in this scene. It is a picture of the judgment that has befallen the people for their sin. And in this scene, men are described in incredible pain, some kind of abdominal pain, for which they are clutching their stomachs. And so the Lord asks what would have been a ludicrous rhetorical question in Jeremiah's day, can a man bear a child? And exactly, and it's unfortunate that I have to say this, but in our day, I can't read past that and say that was a ludicrous rhetorical question. Because unfortunately, there are people in our day who purport that a man can bear a child, and anyone who takes science even halfway seriously understands that this is impossible. So for believers, while we can and should be kind and gracious to those who are confused on these matters, and many are, because the culture is a powerful force in this. So don't, don't, don't look down your nose at people who are confused about these things. But I don't want you to be unsure either. That God created man, male and female, he created them. And there is a distinction in, in that the gender option is not an option. God assigned us each a gender. But how we treat people matters. How we respond to people matters. And you and I, without exception in this room today, I can say this emphatically, have all been confused on matters in our past. None of us have always been right. None of us have always understood things and gotten everything right and not been wrong on anything. And so may we be compassionate to those as we encounter them who are confused about these things and show grace and kindness. Well, this was not the case in Jeremiah's day. This, this was simply a literary device to, to, to convey something that was going on physiologically, and that was, it was pestilence. Remember sword, famine, and pestilence, the great trifecta of judgment that we've seen throughout Jeremiah. This was some kind of pestilence that was happening that caused this abdominal pain. And it wasn't just abdominal pain. We see that their faces are described as pale. There's some kind of jaundice going on here. There is great illness among the people. And we know that that was a part of the judgment that was to befall them. But it's actually a picture of something greater that is, is, is describing uh, their hearts, which we'll see further into the text. Now, in the midst of this, in verses 7 and 8, the Lord breaks into this awful scene. This is what it's like. You're, you're, you're being judged for your sin, but I'm going to break in and I'm going to save you. I will break his yoke from off your neck, he tells them. In verse 8, and even though he doesn't mention the name of him, we all know who this is because we've just been through the previous chapters. And we know this is the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, the, uh, the, the yoke which he will break. 
Now, it could equally apply to any oppression, and we could actually look at this and see that one day the, uh, you know, he will, uh, Satan, the great enemy, will also be stomped under his feet, right? I mean, there's a sense of defeat in this and that God will do this. But in the particular context, he's speaking specifically of Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to break the yoke. He's going to bring the people back. No longer would they be ruled by this foreign power. And he says that he would, they would be restored to serve him, the Lord. And David as their king, who I will raise up for them. Now, as we read this in English, we might be think, tempted to think that there would be some kind of resurrection of David, that David would be brought back to life. But the plain reading of this for the people in this day would not have been the, 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 any idea of resurrection, but rather that there would be one who was of David, who would be raised up. And we understand this uh, just from our study of Jeremiah, that this is what this is pointing to. This is pointing to a son of David who would come who would come as the king of kings of an eternal kingdom that would have no end. Remember when Judah came back, they had no king. This is not the immediate context of, of, of Judah. This is pointing further off, further down the road. This is a second horizon uh, kind of viewpoint, that a better, truer king was coming, clearly pointing to the Messiah. Then in verse 10, salvation is promised as being brought back from far away. Just like what we, we read and sang this morning that the Lord, uh, or, or as I prayed, the prodigal, he's in the business of restoring, of bringing back, even when we wander away. And what we saw in Deuteronomy 30, uh, for he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. Again, we like to think the God of the Bible, the God of the New Testament is the God of the prodigal son, you know, this God of mercy and grace and so forth. This is Deuteronomy, folks. <laughs> All the way back in Deuteronomy is the description of the, the God of the prodigal right here. If you walk into the heavens, if you're astronauts, he's saying, before they can even imagine astronauts, you wonder that far away from me, you can't go so far that I will not bring you back and restore you. Not only is he going to do this, though, but he's going to deal with the nations that have oppressed them. And he assures them, yes, I will discipline you. The consequences for your sin don't get moved out of the way. You will still be disciplined, but I will bring you back and I will deal with those who have oppressed you. It's the picture of a loving parent who corrects their child with the assurance of their love for them. As we come to verse 12, we mark a new section. Thus says the Lord marks the, the, the new section. And here we begin to zero in on the state of Judah. And, and it's still sickness, but it moves beyond abdominal pain to this incurable disease. Judah is terminal in her sin, and there is no hope. It's the same message that we read of Ephesians 2 of our own condition. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Being dead in our sins, we were without hope. Likewise, Judah is without hope. Your hurt is incurable. There is no healing for you, verse 13 says. And then in this section, or in this, in this description, in this position, uh, the Lord then moves into verse 14 to say that there's no one here on earth that can save you. Not only are you terminal, 
but there's no doctor for you. There's no medicine for you. Your lovers have abandoned you. Those whom they looked to, Egypt and Assyria and the other world powers that they thought would come in and save them, all your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. It is like the bad news of the gospel that we must hear first. Before we can understand grace, before we can appreciate the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus, we must first understand how great our sin is, that we are without hope. We have an unsolvable problem that no one can fix, humanly speaking. The Lord even asks, why do you cry out over your hurt? Because he's saying, your, your sins are flagrant. You've done this to yourselves. A justified discipline that they're experiencing. But discipline is temporary. Discipline is designed to lead us to repentance. So discipline serves a purpose. It's not forever. Hebrews tells us, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is to lead us to repentance. It serves that purpose. And while we might feel like discipline lasts forever, and maybe it could last longer than any of us would wish if our hearts were particularly hard, it is designed to lead us to fall on the mercy of God. And then the Lord, once again, in verse 16, promises to deal with the oppressing nations. And then he says, For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal declares the Lord. So he sets up this situation like Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you have been made alive together with Christ. Here he's like, your, your wounds are incurable. You're terminal. There's no hope for you. There's no medicine for you. No one can save you. But I will restore your health. And your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. What was incurable, he alone could, could cure. What was cast out and spoiled, he alone can restore. What was dead... He alone can resurrect and give new life to. This is the hope of Judah and Israel, and it is our hope as well that our God is our Redeemer and Restorer. And then the last section, verse 18, beginning again with us says the Lord. We move directly into the message of restoration, and the message of judgment comes at the end. He mentions first restoring the fortunes of of the tents, having compassion on dwellings, the city and the palace being rebuilt. The word for tents here can mean literal tents, but it's also often used in Scripture to represent people, clans, families, and so forth. And so used together with dwellings, it is representing the whole of the people of Judah. But not just the whole of the people, but it's holistic restoration. That not only will they get new houses and new uh, possessions and everything be restored unto them, but they themselves will be restored. We'll see this later. We've seen it already. Uh, and, and when we've looked back in Deuteronomy, we're going to see it in Jeremiah. He would circumcise their hearts. He would change their hearts. The language of the New Testament is taking, a, you know, given a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, actually quoting a passage from the Old Testament. And so this is then reflected, the fact that they're changed, their lives are changed, not just their condition. We tend to focus on that because that's what we prefer. We'd like the Lord, again, you know, curse me with that uh, curse of, of money. Uh, we'd like for our situation to change, our circumstances to change. God is in the business of changing people. And the fact that he has changed the people is reflected in verse 19, that they are now singing songs of thanksgiving to celebrate all that God has done. Additionally, he's going to add to their number. 
He's going to give their honor back. It was reflective of the covenant language to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. They've been dwindled down in number. They've been carried off in exile. Many have been killed in in and through the judgment. God says, I'm going to restore even that. Um, He says that I'm going going to, in a sense, make you the nation that, that, that I intended to make you. And if we look back to Exodus 19, we see there, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The intention of God's people and the nation of Israel was that they would be a kingdom of priests to the nations. That they would not be insular, that they would not be just about themselves saying, we're the chosen people patting themselves on the back. But that they would be ones who reflected and shined the glory of God to the nations. He promises them to give them again a prince, a ruler from among themselves out of their midst. It goes back to the promise that Moses gave in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So in that passage, it's prophet. In this passage, it's prince or ruler. But then as we move on to verse 21, I will make him draw near and he shall approach me for who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. So here we get the picture of a priest, one who's drawing near to the Lord. Who would be this prophet and priest and king to be raised up from among the people of Judah? It is, of course, the Messiah, Jesus, who came fulfilling all three of these roles as our prophet, priest, and king. He is the only one who is worthy, who is the only one, the one who can approach the Father, and he has done so on our behalf. And then as the, picture, the chapter closes, the picture is this of a storm. I think in part this comes at the end as a reminder to not take God's kindness for granted by returning to their sinfulness. You know, so often that's our temptation when we experience grace is that we think, ah, oh, the pressure's off, I can just go back and do what I want. And God's saying, no, 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 be careful. Don't tread on my mercy. Do not go on sinning that grace may abound. That's the question asked in Romans 6. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into water in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Yet the warning is also a benefit for those who would reject God, who would oppose Him. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back in verse 24. And then the chapter ends with that statement, in the latter days you will understand this. There's great comfort in that. In the latter days you will understand this. But the thought actually continues. It's why I'm including verse 1 of chapter 31 in this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Now the thought continues uh, because this is one book, so we'll be connected through these next four chapters. Uh, but the, the, the theme, as we read in the very beginning, is expressed here. I will be your God, you will be my people. It's a covenantal theme that God is expressing to his people. In the latter days, you will understand gives us a reminder that his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are higher, his ways are higher, yet he who is doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this is of comfort to us as we go through suffering in this life. We have much to be thankful for when it comes to the hope of restoration, when all the promises will find their completion. But it is good for us to end by remembering this 
that the grace of God demonstrated in the cross of Christ is not only to be treasured, but we are also to be mindful of the judgment that he endured on our behalf to accomplish it. Grace isn't cheap. Atonement for our sins wasn't cheap. God didn't simply overlook our sins, but has laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. And so it is good to remember the cost of our redemption, that we will remain both humble and thankful, neither thinking that we've earned it or that we've contributed to it. But it is also good to remember the cost of our redemption, that it might cause us to fear God, that we would not go on sinning in any way. May we not cheapen the immeasurable grace shown to us by going on sinning. May we not think that our sin isn't grievous or costly simply because we think it's hidden from others. May we not trivialize the payment Christ made on our behalf to bear the just wrath of the Father for our sin by attempting to justify our pet sins rather than killing them. I don't think it's mean or unkind to say this. I think it actually would be unkind not to say this. Your secret sins are not secret. Not only are they known before God who is holy and omniscient, that same God is also your Redeemer and your Restorer. The writer of Hebrews asks, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Confess your sins, even your secret sins, and turn in repentance to find his grace and mercy. I am saying this to believers as well as unbelievers. Confess and turn. Of course, I'm saying this to unbelievers, anyone who has yet to believe, repent and turn back that your sins might be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that you might hear the call of salvation. Those times of refreshing include even now, they're not just a far-off hope, the freedom of forgiveness, the relief of forgiveness, the freedom of being able to walk in new life and the joy that comes with that. Both of those times are included, though, in the days ahead when everything will be restored and completed, our fortunes will be restored. The immeasurable riches of Christ Jesus will be fully ours. He will restore our tents so that we will know and be truly home forever. And we will be His perfectly. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering as we dwell with our God face to face forever. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Let's pray.